Support for the podcast series Forgotten Prison comes from Gonzaga Law School and its Center for Civil and Human Rights, dedicated to enriching the educational experience of students and contributing to the practice of civil and human rights. Details at gonzaga.edu slash law. Thanks to Humanities Washington for their generous grant. All right, Paula, it's the last episode. Hard to believe, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Any ideas? Well, you know, Simone, there's a story that I have wanted to tell since we started this podcast. Which story is that? Well, whenever we talk to somebody, I always mention that this guy was at McNeil. Oh, is this the Birdman of Alcatraz? (laughs) Yeah, the Birdman of Alcatraz. It, it's a really interesting story. Yeah, I, I know, but it's like never it never really fits anywhere. No, but I think it really fits here because it really tells us a lot about McNeil Island, but also kind of the broader debate about the purpose of prison. All right. Well, if, if we're going to tell his story, we should at least start with the guy's real name. Robert Stroud, American, a convict, a man who to this day is unbeaten, unbowed, unconquered. They call him the Birdman, and he is the most defiant man alive. The film The Birdman of Alcatraz was made in 1962, starring Burt Lancaster. He plays Stroud as a brilliant inmate who keeps hundreds of canaries in his cell to study them. He even ends up discovering cures for some bird diseases. That part is true, although the title isn't exactly accurate. The Birdman of Alcatraz was on Alcatraz, but he actually kept birds at the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. And the movie doesn't really go into Stroud's first encounter with the prison system on McNeil Island in South Puget Sound. It's there he began forming his opinions about how and why we lock people up. From KNKX and the Washington State History Museum, this is Forgotten Prison. I'm Simona Alicea. And I'm Paula Whistle. Because McNeil operated for more than a century, it's one of the few places in the country where you can see nearly every era of prison history. What you gather is that we tend to forget about prisons. And that's what the Birdman was thinking about when he landed on McNeil Island. It was September 1909 when Robert Stroud was brought to the island. It had taken five days to transport him from Alaska. He was 19 at the time. He'd been convicted of shooting a man to death in Juneau. And in a way, he was coming home. Although he'd been on his own for a while, he was born in Seattle. In a manuscript published after Stroud's death, he writes about the conditions he encountered at McNeil, which were pretty primitive. There wasn't any modern plumbing, for example. And he recounts what it felt like to be in prison for the first time. To realize, he writes, you are no longer the master of your own life. About his first night on McNeil, he writes, The gloom, the chill, the filth, the rotted floors, the stench of the night buckets, The silence, almost like that of the grave, fell upon my spirits and reduced me to the lowest point in my experience. These cells seem to be symbolic of all the misery of the ages of man's eternal inhumanity to man. Throughout his writings, Stroud muses on the purpose of incarceration, 
Reading his firsthand accounts, you also get a sense of daily life on McNeil. As he was arriving, he saw inmates digging with shovels in preparation for new buildings. The work was hard, but the meals, by his account, were plentiful. There were large servings of roast beef and gravy and hearty breakfasts. And inmates could look forward to entertainment on Sunday evenings in the form of records played on a phonograph. Stroud remembers that the warden at McNeil, whose name was Halligan, had a special fondness for this popular tune about an Irishman named Harrigan. Playing phonograph records for prisoners was actually something that Congress required federal prisons to do. Robert Stroud didn't stay at McNeil. He got in a fight, stabbed and badly injured a man, so he was shipped off to the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. While he was there, he killed a guard and was sentenced to death. He only lived because President Woodrow Wilson commuted his sentence. It was decades later that he was sent to Alcatraz. At Alcatraz, Stroud had a reputation as someone you wouldn't want to cross. But he was also a keen observer who analyzed everything using the same scientific rigor he'd applied to birds, While at Alcatraz, he wrote a scathing critique of the U.S. prison system, but officials banned its publication. In the Birdman movie, there's a confrontation over the manuscript between Stroud and the warden. I'm confiscating this manuscript, Bob. Uh, We've grown old together in penitentiaries, and in all that time, I've only asked one thing from you, cooperation. The only thing I've ever gotten back was defiance. Not once have you ever shown a sign of rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. Yes, rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? Don't be insulting. The unabridged Webster's International Dictionary says it comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? In real life, Stroud did battle with officials, although it was mostly in court. He died in 1963 while his free speech lawsuit against the prison was still pending. What Stroud says could have been written today. The mere fact that more than 50% of the persons released from prison today return to crime is an admission of failure, a most startling admission of failure, of a terrible failure that has contributed to the ruination of many thousands of lives and the wastage of hundreds of millions of dollars. Our recidivism rates may not be quite 50%, but we're still struggling to stop people from reoffending after they get out. It gets back to why we lock someone up. Is it just for punishment, or are we sincere about wanting them to become more productive citizens? It's a debate that's easy to ignore. After all, just like McNeil Island, most prisons are out of sight, out of mind. But there are consequences when we ignore whether prison is working or not. People cycle in and out, costing money and human potential. Okay, my name is Mark David Balf. I'm 59 years old and spent from 1984 through 2009 at McNeil Island. 
Mark Bolf was in and out of McNeil during that time. He's done stints in one prison or another in Washington State throughout most of his adult life, usually for auto theft. He jokes he's done his time on the installment plan. I interviewed him in the state prison in Monroe, Washington last year when he was within six months of release. Mark vividly remembers his first experience in prison as a young man. It was back in 1984. He and the other inmates arriving on McNeil Island were chained together as they entered one of the old cell houses. When the chain came in, everybody stopped and checked out everybody that was coming in on the chain. It was, it was intimidating. And then I had to carry a mattress and a footlocker up three flights of stairs to get to my cell which was an eight-man cell. So you have four beds on one side, four on the other, and in the middle was a little card table with the toilet behind it and the TV up above you. It was really nasty conditions. It was so loud, it was smoky. Uh, It was just unbelievable. Like any of us in a new environment, Mark had to figure out how to adapt. But remember, we're talking about prison. As one of the new guys, he was an easy target. Inmates would try to scam him out of money. And even in dangerous situations, he quickly realized he'd have to take care of himself. And just a warning here, some listeners may find this disturbing. I was in the shower and this guy stepped into my shower and uh, he hit me and, well, I grabbed hold of something and squeezed as hard as I could and then pushed him. He fell out onto the tile and gave up and walked away. But you couldn't report that back then because that just compounds your problems. But he says he's seen things change since then. There are now ways to report rape and abuse anonymously. He says over the years, prisons have started to take more of an interest in the safety of inmates. In prison, like anywhere, there's the good that comes along with the bad. Mark and other inmates we talked to said on McNeil, you of course had the million dollar view. But Mark also remembers there were just a lot of fun things to do. They had a hobby shop where you could do woodworking, ceramics. They had a music room with all the equipment. And on the 4th of July in the yard, they would bring out a flatbed semi-trailer and have a battle of the bands with all the different inmate bands. And, you know, they had a Pepsi fountain machine so you could drink all the pop you wanted and a barbecue. And it was really, really pretty cool. And Mark says he did make friends, although in prison, at a moment's notice, your friend could just disappear. When I got there in 19, let's see, when I got there in 88 that time, um, my best friend and co-worker in the library was Eric Baker, and his DOC number was 281193. And I still remember that because we worked together, 
we had each other's back we had this click and it was a protection thing but it was also to make you feel human having somebody around that would care about what happens to you or care You know, one of the things that was the hardest, you would make friends with somebody and you would create through time this serious bond. But at any given moment, you could come back to your cell and find his beds rolled up. He got in trouble and he's gone and you never see him again. Inside prison, loss is a constant theme, and you miss so many things on the outside. If a loved one dies, you may not be released to go to a funeral to grieve. But sometimes you get an unexpected show of kindness, like when a chaplain goes the extra mile. When my mom died, uh, Father Suss contacted my family, and before she died, they did a videotape of her saying goodbye to me and got it sent to his house. He brought it in and I got to view it in the chaplain's office. That is just amazing, you know. More recently, Mark's wife Connie died. They'd been married 37 years through all his stints in and out of prison. And he says prison staff helped him through that too. But while there are moments of personal kindness, the prison as an institution can be cold and unforgiving. Mark says last time he got out, he was doing well, had a job, a place to live, but then he fell in with the wrong people and slid back. He blames himself, but he also says once you're in the system, it's easy to fall hard. Let's say you get out, but you're required to stay away from alcohol. Somebody leaves a bottle of wine in your fridge and you're back behind bars. Talking to Mark, you realize that prison is a weird mix. You do live your everyday life, but you miss it too. It's not like you give up making friends or drinking soda, but you are stuck. There's always that knowledge in the back of your head that you are here. You have to stay here. Your family has to get along without you, which is a great burden for a lot of families. And you're really useless. And I am fortunate now when I say I don't have any visitors on my visiting list, because like at McNeil Island, you had two boats coming in for visiting. If they didn't make the first boat, you're worrying. My God, did she get hurt? Are they in an accident? What's going on? And then if they don't make the second boat and you're locked in the cell and can't get to a phone, you're going crazy and bananas trying to find out what's going on, the stress, the tension. And then the hardest part is saying goodbye. 
floppy disks. Dad Child Day. Oh, oh interesting. Something in 2001. People came to see their Women's kids. Conference. The prison on McNeil Island has been abandoned for nearly a decade, and the island is off limits. The old buildings are eerie, and the island is quiet. But the rooms in the prison and the old homes are still filled with objects that remind you that people spent time here, drinking coffee, bits of non-dairy creamer, playing music. That's out of tune. There's a room in the old warehouse where inmates made furniture that's got boxes and boxes of things. There's a lot of paperwork, old reports and newspaper clippings, and there are piles of photos. Official staff photos, candids with no names or dates, pictures of the prison yard when the sun was shining and the grass was trimmed. I think, you know, you could look, you really need time to look through here and see what you have. Luckily, we were able to go to the island more than once. On one of our trips, we split up. I went off to go see the old medical building. And I stayed in that room in the old furniture factory to help our partners at the History Museum find artifacts for the exhibit. So, Simone, when I left, uh, you were going through boxes and you found something that really struck you. Yeah, there was uh, there was a lot of paperwork we were going through oh, in yeah. those boxes, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're trying to figure out what was useful and what wasn't. And, you know, buried under like a report or in some uh-huh. file, we found this little paper picture book. Um, and it's called Where My Dad Lives, written by Long Distance Dad's McNeil Island Correction Center. Then as we opened it and we read it, we realized it was a book that was written by men who were incarcerated on McNeil Island um, for their children to help them understand sort of what prison is and what their lives are like in prison. So So it's very much a picture book. Yes. So, you know, for example, on the cover, there's this picture of the island um and there's four guys in sort of the khaki prison uniforms and they're surrounded by all these woodland creatures so there's a (laughs) raccoon and a deer and a seagull and a goose and i think that's a seal in the water it kind of looks like a polar bear but i think it's Mm -hmm. supposed to be a seal (laughs) and uh if you i have it printed out Mm -hmm. right here and i wanted to read you a few sections okay okay Uh, The first chapter is called Where Your Dad Lives. Mm -hmm. Your dad lives on McNeil Island. This island is near Tacoma, Washington. More than 500 dads live at McNeil and lots of men that wish they were dads. There are tall dads and short dads and skinny dads and chubby dads and brown dads and white dads and lots of colors in between dads. There are so many dads that everyone is given a number. Your dad's number is, and then it includes a space wherein um, you can write your your, your inmate number. Your DOC number. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Where your dad sleeps. Your dad sleeps in a room that is about as big as a large bathroom, 
It has two desks, two chairs, two tall lockers, and a TV. It also has a bunk bed. Your dad sleeps on the, and then it says top or bottom, uh. bed. This is my, uh, my favorite chapter. It's called Visiting Your Dad. Oh. The night before you visit, your dad is very excited and nervous, like the way you feel before the first day of school. You ride on a big white boat to get to the island. Then you walk up the hill to the visiting room. This isn't much fun when it rains. When your dad gets to see you, he is very happy, especially when you jump into his arms and kiss him. Your dad likes to hold your hand on the way to the vending machine to buy food and pop. Sometimes your dad can also feel sad when you visit. This isn't your fault. Your dad feels sad because he loves you so much and he wants to be with you all the time. Why your dad lives on McNeil Island. As we grow up, we have many choices. There are good choices and bad choices. If we choose to do the right things, we will be happy. But if we choose to do bad things, we will be sad. Your dad made a bad choice. Now he is very sad. It means he can't come home and play with you right now. It's okay to hope that your dad has learned something from his bad choice. It's important to make good choices. And then there's a space that says, some good choices that your dad has made are. It does, it gives you a whole different view of prison too. You know, we talk about how prisons are forgotten. It's there, people don't think about it and they don't always think about the sort of the, the human potential inside either. They're there, and it's sort of, in many ways, many cases, I know, not even talked about within the family. They're they're in prison, and there's a stigma attached to that. And even as a little kid, you're often told not to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am very impressed with how this was written. In what way? It's just very, it really speaks to a child. And they're very direct, and the kinds of, you know, I mean, basic and... I, I don't know. It just I, I could see a kid reading this and, and feeling better about about their dad. This book was part of a bigger program, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the book was written in the early 2000s um, as part of this father's program on McNeil Island. And mm-hmm. at the time, it was the only prison in Washington state that had a program specifically for um, fathers who were incarcerated. And um, like I said, it involved several different portions. I mean, so so there was um, the, this class that would, um, you know, provide sort of parenting skills and communication mm-hmm. skills for these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, they the prison also connected with the school district so that um, oh. inmates could participate in parent teacher conferences and they got a hold of study materials for the different classes so that when kids came to visit, they could study with their mm-hmm. dads. Oh, nice. Um, but I think like coming upon this object in the prison and it's just, it just seems so bizarre. Well, also it's in this abandoned prison where, you know, there was just stuff in boxes and this was sort of just tossed in there. I mean, yeah. there's something, yeah, I, I don't know what the, you know, but kind of just tossed aside with the prison perhaps this is something that was 
written by inmates Mm -hmm. about inmates detailing what their life was like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we found it, it was dirty. It was waterlogged. um, And I just feel like I learned so much from reading it (laughs) that it seemed so disappointing that it was almost lost forever. We forget about places like McNeil Island. It's why the abandoned prison looks the way it does today. And it's why there's so little discussion about the Special Commitment Center, even though it's the only place on the island where people still live. We did a deep dive into the Commitment Center in Episode 2. But as a reminder, it's where the state civilly commits so-called sexually violent predators after they've served their prison time. Part of it is that McNeil is an island. But the truth is that places like the prison and the Commitment Center are designed to feel separate from the outside world. What can I get going for you? Um, you know what? I'm going to have the, um, can I have the catfish po' boy? In a busy restaurant in Walla Walla, I met Dick Morgan, the last superintendent of the McNeil Island Correction Center. And he has a deep understanding of the role of prisons. So prisons in general, uh, well, always want to be a good partner with their host communities, but we also don't want uh, neither the community nor the department wants the prison to be a bad headline for the community. So staying invisible is just a natural part of uh, being a prison in Washington State. Do you think people lose out on something when like when they can't see it or when there's you know is is there a loss there well i think there's a tremendous loss there nationally because you have that that attribute in prisons in general which is lock them up and forget about them don't tell me about them i don't want other than hollywood i don't want to see anything uh about them so they're so the public loses perspective about what is prison. Prickly. Yeah. As we get ready to leave the island for the last time, knowing that we probably won't ever come back, we realize that pretty much nobody will. Because of all the red tape around the commitment center, the old prison, and the wildlife preserve, McNeil is probably never going to be a park. And it's probably never going to be a museum like Alcatraz. But there was so much left behind when the prison on McNeil Island closed in 2011. The state called it a cold closure, but it really means that we just walked away. So the way the the razor wire once closed off the prison, the blackberry vines are now closing off the razor wire and the rest of the prison taking over. When Paula and I talked to people who spent time here, inmates, guards, their families, 
and we tell them what's become of this place where they spent so much time, it hurts. Yes, it was a prison, but they have memories here. So to just leave it, to waste away, it's like saying that history doesn't matter. And it's not just their history. All the things here, the prison, the houses, the commitment center, were built in our name. McNeil is our island. And this rotting prison, that's ours too. so much for listening to Forgotten Prison. Before we roll the credits, we just want to say that this kind of in-depth journalism takes a lot of time, money, and effort from a lot of different people. You can support more of it by giving monthly as a sustaining member of KNKX. Sustaining memberships help keep us strong and ensure that we can continue to bring you podcasts like Forgotten Prison. To sign up, head to knkx.org support and set a monthly amount that works for you. And now, the credits. Forgotten Prison was produced by me, Simona Alicea. And me, Paula Whistle. Our editor is Aaron Hennessy. Additional editing from Bethany Denton, who's also our mix engineer. Original music composed and performed by Bill Anschel. Our logo was created by Adrian Flores. Matt Martinez is our director of content. Parker Miles Blome is the man behind our website, ForgottenPrison.org. If you haven't visited yet, Parker's photos are well worth the trip. And if you head over to the KNKX website, you will find a bunch of stories that didn't make it into the podcast, written by our digital content manager, Kari Plogue. Special thanks to Kevin Kniestead, who played the voice of Robert Stroud in this episode. He read from Stroud's book, Looking Outward, A Voice from the Grave, published in 2014. Thank you so much to our partners at the Washington State History Museum who helped conduct interviews and do lots of research. Mary Michael Stump is the audience engagement director and Gwen Whiting is the lead curator of the exhibit at the museum in Tacoma. The exhibit runs through May, 2019. Special thanks to all of the people who helped make this podcast possible, especially Dave Beals, Eric Heinitz, Giselle Grayson, the NPR Story Lab and training teams, Austin Jenkins, and all of our colleagues at KNKX. And of course, thank you to everyone who spent time at McNeil who shared their stories with us. This is the last episode of Forgotten Prison, but don't fret. Watch this space for extra stories, outtakes, or other bonuses. And there are lots of other things to listen to on KNKX. Be sure to subscribe to our sister podcast, Sound Effect, featuring stories inspired by the Pacific Northwest. And to go deeper into our Western Washington communities, check out our KNKX Connects series. Thanks for listening. This is Forgotten Prisons.